11 o'clock, how we doing this morning? Oh, you could have been anywhere in the world this morning and you chose to be here with me. It is good to be with you this morning, Rocky Peak, whether you're here on campus or watching online, and special welcome to those of you that are in attendance or joining us online for the very first time. Welcome to Rocky Peak this weekend. If we have not had a chance to meet yet, my name is Dre. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Rocky Peak. And before we go into the time of teaching, I gotta address something. Man, every service has been scared when I've said that. It's Mother's Day. I gotta say something about that. And so I want to give a heartfelt shout out to all of the moms. My mom had to raise me. So I have a deep appreciation for how hard that job is. And so to all of the birth moms, all of the grandmothers, all of the stepmoms, all of the foster moms, all of the spiritual moms, maybe you're not related by blood, but you've had an impact impact in mothering other people. Not only thank you for your role, thank you for what you do, but I promise you, you have no idea of the significance of your impact and influence on the people around you. So can we make some noise for the mothers? And it's been awesome every service to see some guy's eyes light up. That's today? Yeah, good job there. (laughs) But I also wanna speak a word of encouragement to some of the women in this room as well that I know that while Mother's Day is an incredible celebration, there are many here that Mother's Day also brings up some complicated emotions, even at times some very painful emotions. And so let me encourage you, the Lord sees you, you have not been forgotten, and the Lord has entered into your trial and your pain and your emotion to bear it like only he can. And so you're not alone and we acknowledge you as well. So Rocky Peak, we're gonna go into our time of teaching. Inside your program is a green and white message note sheet, which is gonna be a tool to follow along with this time. I'm ready to give you everything I've got. You ready, 11 o'clock? All right, I'm going to pray and we're going to jump right in. Jesus, I want to come before you right now with a heart and a posture of gratitude, but to do that, I need to confess. Jesus, I need to confess that there are times when I look at my life, when I look at our culture, when I look at the situations, the trials I face, in which I'm not thankful for what you've already given me. There are times in which I look at the trials, the pain in my life or in our culture in which I go and I only focus on what I feel like I lack, what I feel like I don't have. And Jesus, I remember your word declares in Psalm 23 that I lack nothing because of you. And there are times in which I wrestle with that. And so Jesus, remind me of what it means that because of you, I don't lack anything. We lack nothing because of your grace, because of your mercy, because of your presence, because of your power, because of your love. We can stand in some of the most violent storms we can experience and declare that because of Jesus, I lack nothing. And so as we go into your word, which is living and active, continue to teach us of that beautiful truth. As I often pray, I pray that I as a communicator would fall to the wayside and become less. I don't want people walking out of here talking about me. I want them walking out here talking about you. And so may you become much, much more. And it's in your name, King Jesus. We all said, amen. So right out the gate, 
I wanna start with something uplifting and positive. I wanna talk to you about the very first time I went to a cemetery. Now, that was actually a very unique circumstance. I was about eight or nine years old, and I'm about to date myself a little bit, but my family had just finished watching the movie La Bamba. Does anybody remember the movie La Bamba? And so to date myself a little bit further, we watched it on VHS. Now, if you're unfamiliar, La Bamba is the biopic in which Lou Diamond Phillips portrays the life of Richie Valens, the real-life 1950s rock star and San Fernando Valley legend. And Richie's life was cut tragically short in which he died in the plane crash that also killed Buddy Holly and the Big Bopper. Later on, it would be referred to as the day the music died. And so in one of the closing shots of the movie, you see Richie's funeral procession leaving the cemetery at the San Fernando Mission. And so the movie ends, and my dad turns to us and he says, I've got a great idea. Let's get in the car and let's go find Richie's grave. Now, we lived in Mission Hills. We weren't that far from it. And as a young kid, that idea sounded awesome. My mother was horrified, <laughs> absolutely horrified. And yet, somehow my dad got her in the car. And so we drive and we get to the mission and we drive out and I'm ready, taking off the seatbelt, opening the door, let's go. And my mom turns back and goes, absolutely not. Put the seatbelt back on, roll up the windows, keep your eyes forward, you are not going anywhere near. And we're sitting there going, mom, how, how else are we supposed to find her? It's like, we're not. We are just gonna endure this as we go through. And finally, my dad relented and gave up, and as a consolation, he took us to our family spot, which was the Cars Jr. on Sepulveda and Nordoff. <laughs> but that was the first time I was ever in a cemetery. But what was interesting is I fast forward, when I was 17 years old, I found myself in a cemetery yet again, but in this situation for very different reasons. When I was 17, I wasn't in a cemetery for entertainment purposes, so to speak. I wasn't in a cemetery for historical purposes. You know, sometimes you find like Alexander Hamilton's tomb or something like that. When I was 17 was the first time I was in a cemetery for the purpose of mourning the death of a loved one. And that was an incredibly different experience that I remember at first from almost immediately feeling not just uncomfortable, but something deeper. I was deeply, deeply unsettled. And as we were there for the funeral, as we were walking around, it never left. It grew and it grew. And I didn't have the words at 17, but when I look back now, I realized what I was feeling was powerless. That was the first time in my life I had ever seen death up close. And it hit me, this is inevitable. I can't stop this. I may try, I may hope, I may put effort into all of the different things, but everything I could possibly do at best is a stall. I walked away at 17 years old realizing it seems that death in the end always wins. And that's the reality of sin, is it not? When sin was unleashed in our world, when sin was unleashed in our lives, sin unleashed the reality of death. In fact, Jesus teaches us as such, there on the front of your note sheet, 
There's an incredible passage from John's gospel in chapter 10 in which Jesus says the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. The thief is the enemy. The thief is the devil. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. And what I have realized since that moment when I was 17 is that death is a much bigger monster than I, had, uh, than I understood. What I have realized is death is not simply what happens happens when my physical heart stops beating, but death is all-consuming and wants to destroy everything about me. Death is prowling like a wild animal wanting to destroy my relationships. Death wants to destroy my friendships, my marriage. Death wants to destroy my emotional health, my mental health. Death wants to destroy our culture. Death wants to destroy our spiritual health and our spiritual pursuit. And again, what we look at scripture is that's the reality of sin. Death is a reality. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He continues, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And so there is a reality of sin, but then there is the reality of the cross. The reality of sin is rooted and defined by death. The reality of the cross is rooted and defined by life. And if you look there, I emphasize that last phrase in the passage, Jesus does not want us to have a small experience of life. He wants us to have life to the full. Life to the full. And what that means and how we learn to live in it, that's what we're gonna be unpacking over the next couple of weeks. And so this morning, we're kicking off a brand new mini-series called Come Alive. And what we're gonna be looking at over three weeks is this truth that Jesus is inviting us to live in his resurrection, that Jesus is inviting us to experience his life in all areas, including those areas in our hearts that we have long thought of as dead. And so Rocky Beak, I really hope that you'll commit to be with us throughout this journey. And so what I wanna do in our time this morning is I wanna set a foundation for this series. And so I'm gonna be speaking more big picture and to set our foundation, we're going to be in a very special passage in the Old Testament of the Bible, the uh, Ezekiel chapter 37. And one of the reasons why I'm very excited to unpack this passage with you is for about the last six or eight months in my own personal life, in my regular times of being in God's word, the Lord is trying to teach me something significant. And so he's only allowed me to be in two passages over the last eight months. The first is Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd and I lack nothing. The second is the passage that we're going to spend the majority of our time with. But before we jump in, we need to establish a little bit of context because we can't remove the fact that this passage was written originally to Israel. And so to be good students of the Bible, we always need to be asking, who were the original recipients of this word and what was going on in their lives? So there on your note sheet, you got a second titled, An Incredibly Brief History Lesson. <laughs> so again, we need to know the bigger narrative of Israel, and I've given you a couple of bullet points, and I am leaving out a lot there. 
But I'm not gonna actually go through each bullet point individually. That's there for your, that's there for you. I'm just gonna speak in a brief summary. And so the nation of Israel for many years was one nation. King Saul, King David, and then King David's son Solomon ruled over the nation of Israel. After King Solomon, Israel broke into two separate nations. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel and the southern kingdom was known as Judah. And the southern kingdom had the city of Jerusalem as well as the temple of God where his presence dwelt. Now the question needs to be asked, why did Israel break? And there are factors that we could look at the warring other nations and superpowers around them. We could look at the politics or different things going on, but the Old Testament makes it clear. Israel broke because of sin. Israel broke because of their disobedience. Israel broke because they kept abandoning the Lord God, Yahweh, for other gods, so to speak. And the reason why we need to understand that point is that sometimes as modern believers, we kind of keep the Old Testament at an arm's length and go, well, how am I supposed to relate with that? Because their story of sin is often my story of sin their story of continually seeking something else other than the Lord God is often the story of my life. But not only that, when we look at Israel's story, we see that their story is a story of sin and disobedience, as well as their story is a God that is unrelenting with his grace and love and still goes after them when they don't deserve it at all. And that is our story as well. So Israel is a lot more relatable than we may think. And so by the time we get to Ezekiel chapter 37, the people of God have no hope. They've been displaced. They've been conquered. Both kingdoms have been ripped apart and the temple has fallen. I think a great way to characterize where the people were at, a couple of weeks ago, I showed my kids for the first time the movie Hook, which is a fantastic movie. And there's a line that Dustin Hoffman's character, Captain Hook, says, he says that death is the only adventure you have left. That's where Israel was as, at this time. They were a people. So hear me, the prophet Ezekiel was called by God to address a people who were completely defined by death. They were defined by bodily death as much of their countrymen had died. They were defined by political death. They had lost their nation. They were defined by relational death and many of them seemingly were defined by spiritual death. There was a hardness of heart because they sat there wondering, God, we were your people. God, you called us to bear your name. God, you said you would be with us and we've lost everything. Where are you now? And again, without needing to raise hands, is that cry not relatable to many of us? You said you would always be with me. Where are you? Now that we've set the foundation, these are people, that, the people that God is addressing through Ezekiel 37. So there in your note sheet, you've got a section titled Walking Through the Valley. If you've got your Bibles, open them up. If you've got your apps, turn them on. We're gonna be in Ezekiel chapter 37. 
And your note sheets are gonna flow a little bit differently than usual. Often I call your attention to underline or highlight some key words or phrases in our passage. For our time this morning, I've gone ahead and written those out in your note sheet. And many of our fill-ins are gonna be actual passages. And so before we jump in, I just wanna invite you to do something. Would you go ahead and take one or two deep breaths? There's nothing magical about that act. I just find that a deep breath often slows me down and focuses me better. And then just in the stillness of your own heart or mind or under your breath, would you pray this prayer? Holy Spirit, open my eyes to see what's in your word today. Amen. Ezekiel chapter 37 starting in verse one. The hand of the Lord was on me and he brought me out by the spirit of the Lord and set me in the middle of a valley. It was full of bones. And so throughout the book of Ezekiel, God is giving the prophet these very vivid visions. Often they're called oracles. And so now we're at the beginning of another one of these visions. He led me, verse two, he led me back and forth among them and I saw a great many bones on the floor of the valley, bones that were very dry. And so let's stop right here and unpack what God is showing the prophet. And so resurrection, new life has to begin with acknowledging the fact that death is real. Resurrection and God's new life begins with acknowledging the reality as well as the gravity of what sin has done. And so as Ezekiel is in this valley of bones, he's seeing one, death is real. Secondly, what he's seeing is that these bones are very dry, meaning they have been dead for a long, long time. Third, what we know culturally is that these bones were not buried, meaning they suffered a dishonorable death. The Lord walks Ezekiel among those bones just to ensure that Ezekiel knows there is no sign of life anywhere. Ezekiel knows this is Israel. This is what sin has done. Ezekiel is standing in a massive grave. And as we think about that picture, I want to ask you a hard question. If you think about your own life, if you think about your own heart, What are the graves in your heart? What are the graves in your life? If I were to define what I mean, I would say, where are the areas in your heart of deep, prolonged pain, suffering, and sin? Where are the areas in your heart of deep, prolonged agony? Where are the areas in your heart in which you would say, despite my best efforts, despite all I've done, despite the amount of prayers I have prayed or I've asked other people to pray, this is an area of my life, this is an area of my heart in which I would say I have experienced little to no healing, little to no freedom, and little to no life flowing through it. Where are the graves of your heart? And that's a broad 
question. Let me give you some examples. This isn't gonna be an exhaustive list, but just to help us in our thinking. For some of you, you would likely say that the grave in my heart is a grave of addiction. I'm addicted to a substance. I'm addicted to something like pornography. I'm addicted to an unhealthy emotion or an unhealthy codependency. And you would say that try as I might, I can never feel like I can ever get the upper hand or win in this addiction is a grave. For others, you would say that a grave in my heart is a broken relationship maybe a broken relationship between you and a parent or the lack of a relationship between you and an absent parent. Maybe it's a broken marriage or romantic relationship. Maybe it's a broken friendship, whatever it may be. You would say that no matter how long ago it was that I lost this relationship, it still deeply marks me, deeply influences me, and it deeply hurts. For others, you would say that the grave in my heart is how I see my own value and worth, that I can hear over and over again that God loves me, that God sees value in me, that I was worth Jesus dying for in God's eye, but if I'm honest, I don't believe it. Because when I think about myself, I don't think those things about myself. And so we feel like we need to earn it. Maybe it's in an aspect of a career. If I can get a career that I'm proud of or gives me purpose, or if I can have the right relationships that I'm proud of or give me purpose, or if I can have the right accolades, or if I can look Instagrammable, that's when I'll finally get purpose. If people can say things about me that I don't believe even about myself. For some of you, maybe you would say that the grave is anger that you are angry deeply about what's been done to you or angry about what's been taken from you. And, And hear me, anger in and of itself is not wrong and not even necessarily sin. But what I talk about when it becomes a grave is when anger becomes dominant. When anger becomes our dominant posture and our dominant emotion. And it seems like that's what we spend our days doing, talking, thinking about everything that makes us angry. It's seemingly all we feel. For some of you, maybe you would say that the grave you feel is the fact that you don't want to obey God in a specific area in your life. Maybe you would say, God, I don't want to obey you in an area of honesty. God, I am lying to people in my life. I am lying to people that are rooting for me, that are caring for me. I'm riding to get ahead. And you know what, God, I'm okay with that because I don't wanna give that up to you. Or maybe it's a lack of obedience with priorities. God, I have hopes, I have dreams, I have visions. I want my family to go in this direction. I know you're gonna mess it up, so I don't wanna give that to you. Maybe your lack of obedience is in your finances. God, I don't want you to to trust you with my finances. Maybe it's in your sex life. God, I don't want to trust your view of purity for my sex life or sexual identity. And again, we could go on and on, but maybe your grave is an area of defiance and disobedience. Maybe your grave, and this is my grave, is fear. Man, I have struggled with this since I was a kid 
over and over and over, scripture says, do not be afraid. And yet over and over and over again, I feel like fear, anxiety, at times tears for a multitude of reasons just dominates how I operate. It dominates how I think. It dominates the decisions I make. And sometimes maybe I'm even making what would be seen as the right decision, but at least from my heart, the right decision made with the wrong heart makes it the wrong decision. And I could go on and on and on. I'm sure you could as well, but what are the graves in your life at Rocky Peak? I feel the weight of what I'm asking right now. This is hard and painful. But I want to encourage you with this. This is the beginning of God's word to us this morning. He is starting with death. He is asking you in radical authenticity to acknowledge the death in your heart because God wants to speak directly into that grave to bring new life out of it. And so we continue in verse three. He asked me, son of man, can these bones live? I said, sovereign Lord, you alone know. I said, sovereign Lord. Lord, you alone know. There in your note sheet, you'll notice that I put this verse in, center, in the center. I bolded it because that is the foundation of our passage, and that is the foundation of new life. The prophet Ezekiel is facing death and to the extreme. He is facing absolutely loss. I'm sure like on his own, he would be like any of us. Can life come back to these bones? I'm sure a big part of him would want to say no. But why does he hesitate to say no? Because he knows who God is. He knows who God is and the true identity of God is the foundation of life. It's the foundation of resurrection and it is the foundation of hope. He says, sovereign Lord. You know, in these last months that I've been in this passage, that's the phrase the Lord brings me back to so often. Remember who God is. To say he's sovereign Lord means he is supreme. He has ultimate power. What we are declaring through this is that God is not my co-pilot. God is not simply my buddy. God is not an advisor. God is not a cheerleader that is rubber stamping any decision I make. God is ultimate. Sovereign Lord. Again, can we pause for a moment just in the stillness of your own heart or mind or even under your breath, would you say that? Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. Sovereign Lord. Verse four. Then he said to me, prophesy to these bones and say to them, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones. I will make breath enter you and you will come to life. I will attach tendons to you and make flesh come upon you and cover you with skin. I will put breath in you and you will come to life. Then you will know that I am the Lord. 
That last statement is pivotal because it is a reminder as well as a declaration that God and God alone is the only giver of life. That too often in my life, I have tried to find life in other areas, in other accolades, in other people, and I've always failed. God and God alone is the giver of life. It's what makes him God. And we continue. So I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I was prophesying, there was a noise, a rattling sound. And the bones came together bone to bone. I looked and tendons and flesh appeared on them and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. There in your note sheet, two verses I wanna highlight. The first, there was a noise, a rattling sound the creator begins to stitch back together his creation. And then the second, but there was no breath in them. So picture this scene. Externally, they probably looked good, but internally, they were not yet alive. And why this is so important, this is a pivotal part of the vision given to Ezekiel, is for many of us, that's exactly where we are we are walking around as the walking dead. That externally, we may look alive. We may look like we have it all together. We may look like we're living in the joy of the Lord, but internally we feel numb. We feel conflicted. We feel pain. We feel the effect of that grave in our lives because the reality is we cannot deny those graves in our hearts no matter how hard we try because those graves get hooks in us, do they not? And when that grave gets hooks in us, it then impacts my daily life. It impacts how I think. It impacts how I feel. It impacts how I act. It impacts how I pursue growth in Jesus. And the longer that that grave tends to impact us, the longer we experience defeat and feel like, well, I guess this is just what life is like until God calls me home to heaven. And the beautiful gift of resurrection is that not only does God want you to spend eternity in heaven, but God wants you to be fully alive now. And so that leads to a truth there on your note sheet. God desires more than the appearance of life. In fact, I want to amend the statement a little bit. If you would add a couple words to it. God desires to give more than the appearance of life. God desires to give more than the appearance of life. His invitation to you, Christ follower, to come alive, fully alive in every area. And then verse nine, then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy son of man and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says. Come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slains that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them. They came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. 
And so what do we see there is that God giving life is an undeserved gift. Remember, Israel experienced death as a consequence of their sin. And before they had any shot of trying to earn it, God gifted them life. But not only do we see the grace of God, but we see the power of God, that God's gift of life defies the power of sin and death. God's gift of life, that if we fast forward a little bit, we see throughout the cross, we live in the aftermath of the death and resurrection of Jesus. And so what that cross declares is that sin, the grave, and hell itself gave it its best shot and it failed before the power of Jesus the King. And so we continue in verse 11. Then he said to me, son of man, these bones are the people of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Again, no need to raise your hand, but that is, an, a, that is a relatable sentiment for so many of us here today, isn't it? Our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. We are cut off. Therefore, prophesy and say to them, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My people, I am going to open up your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. Then you, my people, will know that I am the Lord. When I open your graves and bring you up from them, I will put my spirit in you and you will live and I will settle you in your own land. Then you will know that I, the Lord, have spoken and I have done it, declares the Lord. And again, what a beautiful, bigger picture of resurrection, right? That I feel like just bringing them back to life would have been enough, but that wasn't good enough for God. He brings them back to life and he restores more things that they don't deserve because of his grace and mercy. And so there in your note sheet, let's highlight two more verses. The first is, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. You and I are absolutely powerless to do anything about the death we encounter in our hearts. We are absolutely powerless. Even if, if we go along with this metaphor, we're able to open the graves. I can't do anything about what I encounter and being powerless in the faith of death is an absolutely beautiful place to be because you and I are powerless, which teaches us to no longer depend on ourselves, but to learn to depend on the only one who is not powerless in the face of death, Jesus the King. Let me illustrate one key way that the Lord had to teach me this. It was almost four years ago now, about four summers ago, that with my long drawn out health struggles, I was in a season that was my absolute worst. I had this period of about three or four months that was just terrible physically. The migraines never stopped. I was incredibly weak. I spent most of my time in bed. I was absolutely miserable. And in the middle of the season, Megan, she just needed some simple things done around the house. In particular, we had bought these hooks, these wooden hooks from Ikea to hang in our dining room area so we could hang family photos. Andre, would you throw that picture up there? And I couldn't help 
So our good friends Adam and Crystal came over to be able to assist with that. And when I heard them come in, I stumbled out of the room, and I need to be honest, I stumbled out of the room pridefully. One, I was incredibly prideful and embarrassed to be seen that weak and broken that I'm like, no, I'm not gonna be seeing that. And two, I was incredibly prideful and uh, incredibly prideful to think I can't even help hanging a simple frame. Now, let me clarify something. Even if I was in full health, I would have been incapable <laughs> of being able to hang these hooks because my spiritual gift, gift is to not be handy and I thrive in it. <laughs> But my friend Adam in his grace is like, yeah, come in. So why don't you hold it up while I drill them in? And at most, it weighed a pound or two, and it's not that high here. And as soon as I got it up, I was there for a few seconds before I realized my body is about to give out. And I'm sitting there, don't, no, 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 no. I couldn't. And I felt absolutely defeated. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit spoke beautifully, gently, powerfully to rebuke me and say, Dre, you are absolutely powerless in this moment. I am not. Depend on me. I've given you people to help you. I've given you people to care for you. You need a new definition of what it means to be alive. And in that moment, that season was still incredibly terrible, but that night was one of the best nights I had ever had. Being powerless is a good thing because I'm dependent on the God that is anything but. And so when the sovereign Lord opens our graves, he does so purposefully with the purpose to give life to what he encounters inside. And again, on your note sheet, <clears throat> the next couple scriptures I wanna highlight, I will put my spirit in you and you will live. And when this was originally being written, remember it's being addressed specifically to the nation of Israel. They were God's chosen people. And so to be given the spirit of the Lord is to, be, is to be a loud declaration that we are God's chosen, that God is with us. And so what's beautiful is Israel was meant to be a catalyst because as we live, as I've mentioned, in the aftermath of the death and resurrection of Jesus, Israel was meant to be a beginning, but now because of Jesus, we all, Jew and Gentile, are the dwelling place of God's spirit. In a beautiful act of grace, he has given us his spirit for many reasons, but a key one is to now define us. Before Jesus in our lives, we were defined by death. The spirit is a reminder, not just to the world at large, but to our own lives, that we are now defined by his resurrection. And that's the second truth there in your note sheet. Resurrection now defines us. Resurrection now defines us. For those of you that were here in our previous series, as we went through the letter of 1 Corinthians, 
When the early church was focused on the right thing, resurrection was not in the back of their minds. The resurrection of Jesus was not simply they did one weekend out of the year, but resurrection was at their forefront. Resurrection was their foundation. Resurrected was, resurrection was what they were rooted in. Resurrection was the reason and the overflow of everything they did. And it's the same invitation for us. Jesus wants you to experience more of what it means to live in his resurrection. The resurrection was not meant to be contained to one moment at your conversion. That was meant to be the beginning of a journey through which you now live in the resurrection of Jesus that brings life not just in heaven, but brings new life now in every area. Until we're called home, there are always going to be graves in our heart but there will always be the resurrection of Jesus to call life out of it. And so again, just pause and focus on that for a moment. I am defined by the resurrection of Jesus. I am defined by the resurrection of Jesus. So what do we do with this? You know, there in your notes, you have a section titled One on One with Jesus. Rocky Peak, I'm what I would call a very simple preacher. I repeat things like a broken record over and over again because there's nothing better that I can tell you. And one of the things I will repeat over and over again until the day the Lord calls me home is that one of the most important things you can do in your life is develop a regular rhythm of spending one-on-one -on -one time with Jesus. Hear me, our gatherings are a gift and they are essential. We need to prioritize this. Our life groups are a gift and they are essential, but all of this is meant to be a catalyst to equip you to then go and be one-on-one -on -one with your precious Jesus because what we do here on the weekend, what happens in your life group is not enough. You need to be one-on-one -on -one with your Savior. And so what I'm gonna ask you to do is in the next 24 hours, you know the drill, to carve out some slow, uninterrupted time to sit with this passage, to read it and reread it. Let the Holy Spirit highlight key words or phrases I mentioned that for me, he keeps bringing me back to that declaration, sovereign Lord, but for you, he may lead you to something different in this. And then as you've sat with that passage, I wanna invite you to then pray this prayer to God. There on your note sheet, what grave is Jesus opening? What grave is Jesus opening? You know, Michael, over the years, has often said that God has an epic vision for your life. And God's epic vision, to use my words, is one of life and to the full. And so Jesus is calling to open up that grave and to do what only he can is to bring resurrection to it. And again, the reason why one-on-one -on -one time is so important, because when we do that, we experience three key things 
the first thing we experience is we experience the presence of God that is with us. And especially in this journey, because this journey of experiencing life, of life coming out of our graves, is a journey. Israel had a road ahead of them. For many of us, we are going to have a road ahead of us, and that road is at times going to be painful and arduous, but the presence of God is a reminder that we do not travel alone and have not been left to figure it out on our own. But not only that, because God opening those graves can often bring up pain, emotion, and suffering. So the presence of God is an essential safe place for us to be emotionally raw and unfiltered with him. For many of us, the beauty of resurrection means that we need to go before Lord and we need to cry, we need to wail, we need to moan loudly. For many of us experiencing the beauty of resurrection, we need to go before God and we need to yell, we need to fume, we need to call God out and ask him, where are you? Why aren't you doing anything? For many of us, we need to go before the Lord and sit in a smoldering silence. And what we will learn like we can't learn in any other situation is not only can God take it, but he has the power to do something about it. And that's the second thing we experience one-on-one is his power, his power to give life. You know, one thing, I've been a pastor at this church for a long, long time, and one thing that happens is often beautifully, people may come up to me or a Michael or Joel or Tim or Johnny or any of the other pastors on staff and ask us to pray for them, and it's a beautiful invitation. But sometimes you can tell that when that invitation is given is because they think there is something more powerful about our prayers. And that's not true because you have the same Holy Spirit that I do. Understand my limitations as a pastor. I stand up on a stage and I yell at you. I may be able to get you thinking. I may even encourage you for a moment, but nothing I could ever say has the power or the authority to actually give give you life. Only Jesus can. And so in his presence is where we experience that in a new way. And then the third thing we experience in this presence is a supernatural patience. Sometimes it feels like resurrection is late, doesn't it? Remember the cry of Mary and Martha when Jesus didn't show up in time? If you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. And what does Jesus show us? That he's not trying to mess with us by not sticking to our schedule, but that he is trying to do more than we could possibly imagine. Jesus will always move at the pace of life. Jesus will always move at the pace of greater life, and I'm not always down with that. So I need a patience that is beyond what I'm capable of on my own. And I experience that in my one-on-one times. So Rocky Peak, as we wrap things up, as I invite the worship team to come on out, the invitation that Jesus has set before each and every one of us is to embark on a new adventure of life and to the full. And I wanna close by going back to the movie Hook. 
If you haven't seen Hook, it's fantastic. Robin Williams was brilliantly cast as a grown-up Peter Pan who lost his way, who forgot who he was. And through the course of the movie, he needs to remember who he was, but not only does he remember who he was, by the time we get to the end, he realizes that while his adventures in Neverland were incredible, that he has a new, a bigger adventure in front of him, which is with his family. And so at the very end of the movie, the character of the now very aged Wendy says, so your adventures are over. And Peter replies with this there in your note sheet, oh no, to live would be an awfully big adventure. And that is the invitation Jesus is calling in your life today. Life into the full. And so as we leave this time of teaching, as we close with a final song of worship, we're gonna sing a song that we've sang often at Rocky Peak. It's a song called Rattle. And to me, what's beautiful about singing this song in this moment, that it wasn't until I started spending time in Ezekiel 37 that I realized what this song was talking about. It wasn't until I spent time in Ezekiel 37 where it felt like a switch went on, I went, oh! And it added a depth and a beauty to these declarations to say, you, God, make dry bones rattle. You roll away the stone. You call life and I am going to live again. And so as I pray and we go into the song, Rocky Peak, let me beautifully encourage you. Worship how you want to worship, but I'm going to give you an encouragement. There's no need to be proper in this moment. Let's be loud and out of tune. Let's move a little bit if you feel so led. Let's receive because this is the declaration of undeserved grace, of undeserved mercy, of the truth that because of Jesus the King, life is coming out of our graves. Thank you, King Jesus, amen? Let's pray. Jesus, we are alive because you are alive. Jesus, we are alive because of your grace and mercy. We are alive because of your power. And Jesus, there are graves in our hearts. There are graves in my heart. And you are here to declare to us today as your people, as your church to say, death no longer has a hold on you. It is time to be defined by life. Whether it's a grave of broken relationships, whether it's a grave of value or worth, whether it's a grave of dishonesty or habitual sin, Jesus, we are ready to say, open the grave in your power. Call life out of it. We no longer wanna be defined by it. We wanna be defined by you. And so as we go into this final song, we are here to sing. We are here to declare. We are here to say, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Dry bones, we are alive because of the power of Jesus. And we are now defined by life and life to the full. Thank you, King Jesus. It is in your name we all said, amen.